Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Word Balloon, the comic book conversation show. John Suntress here, releasing two episodes today. Uh, this episode and then also a Venom panel featuring Venom's originator. Dave Michelini, a great conversation from Terrificon. This is another great conversation from Terrificon. A Superman at 80 panel featuring four gentlemen who represent uh, writing Superman from the 70s all the way to today. If you read any of that era that, that we were on, there was contrast. And that was, Bibble was there for humor, mm-hmm. but sure. it was also there for some pathos. Yeah. I mean, there was an aspect to all these characters that you're not going to read a comic where guys are just gritting their teeth for well, 20 pages. That, that, that was the era. Comics today. But that was the era we were existing in. And the pressure was everything had to be serious. Everything had to be, you know, uh, dark night. Dark and gritty. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Superman had to have a gun. <laughs> There's Paul Kupperberg, Jerry Ordway, Roger Stern, and Pete Tomasi. A great conversation about the Man of Steel from the men that know him best. Uh, very much a companion piece to the Robin panel that I released uh, a couple days ago. But uh, this is terrific, and uh, of course it is. It was at Terrificon. Honestly, such a great group of uh, current and past creators at Terrificon, and it was a real pleasure to talk to some of these gentlemen for the very first time. Roger Stern was a first-timer on this panel, and even Pete Tomasi. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with the guys talking about the Man of Steel on today's Word Balloon. Word Balloon is brought to you by the League of Word Balloon listeners. Thank you, League, for your support. You're helping me get to New York Comic Con. Can't wait to see everybody. No table, no panels, just uh, wandering the aisles, uh, touching base with some publishers, touching base with a lot of creators in Artist Alley. That's the main place you'll find me is probably in Artist Alley. That's usually the case. I'll try and sneak in and watch a couple panels as well, if I can. But really, when it comes down to is uh, my trip to New York Comic Con is truly sponsored by the League of Word Balloon listeners. You're helping me out, League. You're helping me get the plane ticket and getting out there and uh, pressing the flesh and hopefully uh, making more networking opportunities for Word Balloon from both a sponsorship and programming standpoint. So... Uh, thank you very much. If you'd like to help Word Balloon out, if you think uh, what I do here is uh, worth a dollar or two a month, uh, I would really appreciate it. Come subscribe to Word Balloon via Patreon at patreon.com slash wordballoon, or on the front page, you can just click on the Patreon ad at wordballoon.com. Thank you, League of Word Balloon listeners. Word Balloon is also brought to you by Lightning Strike Comics, the Irish comic book publisher behind titles such as The Life and Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, Prince Valiant, the 80th Anniversary Magazine, Highlander, the Commemorative Movie Magazine, and many more. They're pleased to announce a brand new series, The Phantom Strikes, featuring the art of Alex Saviak and a new original story by David Williams. The Phantom Strikes will also feature future contributions by artist Mike Collins and many more. To order copies, go to their website, lightningstrikecomics.com. Retailers can make bulk orders by emailing info at lightningstrikecomics.com. They've also teamed up with the longest-running Phantom comic publisher, Fru Comics, to offer you more titles featuring The Ghost Who Walks, including for younger audiences, Kid Phantom Number 1, and the trade paperback of The Phantom's earliest stories for those who came in late. Other titles, such as the award-winning creator-owned anthology series, Lightning Strike Presents, is also available online at their website, lightningstrikecomics.com, 
and available on Comixology. And if you're heading to New York Comic Con, you can pick up copies of The Phantom Strikes from Alex Savick's table at Artist Alley. That's booth I-10 in Artist Alley. And there will be a fan meetup at New York Comic Con at the Cosplay Central Stage, presented by Imager, located in the River Pavilion, Sunday from 345 to 445. Limited edition signed prints of the portrait cover by Oisin Roche will be given out for free on a limited first-come, first-served basis. Pretty cool stuff from Lightning Strike Comics. I'm a huge fan of the Phantom. Uh, coming up in the weeks ahead, you will be hearing a nice conversation with Alex Saviak, uh, a great Phantom artist. Uh, he's done the book many times, and uh, I'm always happy to talk about The Ghost Who Walks, Lee Fox, great creation, a superhero that predates Batman and Superman. By several years, early 30s, when you think about it, one of the first masked superheroes started in the comic strips, made it into comics as well, and uh, truly one of the great adventure series uh, starting at the dawn of comics, Lee Fox Phantom, and uh, Lightning Strike Comics have them. All right, without further ado, let's get into our conversation now with uh, the men behind Superman. Low those many years during some of Superman's most crucial uh, periods, and uh, it's great to get these guys together and have this discussion. Now, next door to our panel, the School of Rock was rehearsing. Bad idea. Occasionally, the, no- the music gets very loud, and I am- apologize for that. Uh, the organizers also apologize. They just didn't, you know, think about the logistics. And, you know, that's all right. Conventions are always kind of a work in progress. And uh, we know next year that uh, they'll have things calm down. I have to admit... There were a couple loud kids at uh, the Venom panel, uh, but uh, not as bad as the School of Rock kids. And it's great music, man. They they sound fantastic, but didn't need a whole lot of love while uh, some of our Superman uh, creators were making their points on the stage. But I think you will still enjoy this excellent conversation between uh, Roger Stern, Jerry Ordway, Paul Kupperberg, and Pete Tomasi, the men behind Superman, now on Word Balloon. The Man of Steel, 80 years, it's hard to believe. But here we are. Absolutely, man. And, and truly, these guys deserve that kind of applause because uh, they've been uh, added to the foundation that was started by uh, Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster back in 1938 with Action Comics number one. My name is John Sunders. I host a podcast called Word Balloon. It's at wordballoon.com. I get the opportunity digitally to interview great creators like our panel today. But today, now, in person, it is a thrill for me to uh, have these people share their Superman stories. So I'm going to start all the way at the end with uh, one of the finest writers that Marvel and DC has ever had the pleasure of uh, employing and giving us the opportunity to read some of his amazing <laughs> stories. The great Roger Stern, ladies and gentlemen. Next to him, another fantastic writer-editor who uh, has done amazing work. In fact, just was on Word Balloon. Go to his website, paulhupperberg.com, because not only does he show script samples of various things that he's worked on, but really amazing gems of projects that he's been involved with that I've never heard of. And it's really a great exploration of the comic book history. Paul Kupperberg, everybody. writer that uh, contributed greatly to uh, Superman mythos and in a very important uh, time, and we'll get into that in our discussion with the great Jerry Ordway. And finally, 
finally, a guy who just wrapped up his uh, Superman run that uh, I think in a lot of ways, along with Dan Jurgens, the two of them uh, course-corrected in the most positive way and brought Superman back to his greatness, the great Peter Tomasio. So eight years of Superman and various incarnations and slight changes to the, uh, the character. And uh, I, I, you know, uh, it, Paul, you came in. Did you come in, Paul, at the tail end of the Jewish yeah, Show? Yeah, I'm the, I'm the earliest chronological yeah. writers on, on this. Um, I started writing Superman around 1980 or 81. Um, my first, uh, I did a, a, an issue of DC Comics Presents with Masters of the Universe. <laughs> and um, Dave Manick edited that because it was a special project with Julie Schwartz, kind of the guest editor. And I guess after he saw my issue, he thought, well, he didn't screw it up too bad. <laughs> so he let me start, he asked me to pitch stories to him. So I started pitching to Superman in Action and DC Comics Presents. And eventually I was writing um, the Superman syndicated newspaper strip. Um, uh, Supergirl, Superboy, uh, and probably about a third to a quarter of the issues of Superman Action and DC Comics Presents for about three, for two or three years. And in addition to that, you wrote um, what was DC's first miniseries. Yes, the World of Krypton uh, uh, miniseries. Uh, that I forgot was, about that. That was originally done as a three-issue arc in Showcase. Um, for Showcase, which got canceled uh, before it could run. So uh, they put it in the drawer. They weren't going to do anything with it. And then the Superman movie was in the works as well. And there was a contractual issue with Mario Puzo, who wrote the original screenplay. And as a result, DC, nobody could do direct adaptations of the movie, which is why they published Elliot Madden's most excellent Superman uh, uh, novelization in its place, even though it had Christopher Reeve's picture all over it. Um, and so in a panic looking for Superman related but non-movie they pulled this thing out of the drawer and said well we'll just you know they it created the, the miniseries they, they actually advertised it as a uh, as a limited you know three issue run which was the first time they had ever done that normally that was called cancellation <laughs> yeah so I did um, I had uh, uh, I did a lot of Superman it, it it, it was, as you well know, coming up with four or five um, foes who can fight God every month is really tough. Yeah. <laughs> it's weird. Tell us about some of the villains that you created. Oh, man. Um, that stuck, if they, if uh, they know. Hmm? The ones that have been doing it. The ones that were good, right? That's what he said. There are none of those. The ones that stuck. Ones so I didn't really create many villains. Um, uh, there were there were villains to, around, and um, Julie Schwartz was going through a period at the time where he was um, down on what he called all the archaeologists. Yeah, he was like, all these guys are digging around and finding obscure stuff and trying to make it their own. Just you know, here we've got all these great villains. Use them. Okay, sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, the, the closest I came was in an issue of DC Comics Presents. Uh, I wrote. I was the writer of, but not the creator of. The first ambush book story. Oh yeah, absolutely. That was Keith Giffen's. Uh, we were Julie brought us in to plot out an issue of uh, DC Comics presented with the Doom Patrol, and um, uh, we were so, yeah. He said, who, "Who will he fight?" And we, we were talking about stuff, and Keith said, "Well, I got this kind of wacky character." I'm sorry. 
Hello, Connecticut! <laughs> yeah, really. Jesus. Uh, so DC Comics presents the Superman in wrestling, apparently. Let's see your hands, everybody! Let's rock! <laughs> having, having worked for the WWE, I'm getting a sweat to see. <laughs> uh, Jerry, I, uh, I think uh, to your era then, um, there's always, you know, that... E-R-A, not E-R-R-O-R. Exactly. Exactly, R-A. We were talking wrestling and baseball. I am always fascinated when there's that feeling of they've got to strip down Superman. Scoutmaster, any chance you go to the other room and let him know? Just phone Thank you, buddy. You're a good man. See? Well, the good scout, ladies and gentlemen. We appreciate it. Thank you. Speaking of stripping down, um, you know, burn yeah, uh, other characters. Yeah. The music's playing. Okay, well, yes. good. <laughs> no, it's a good transition. <laughs> um, there was um, uh, while you know during the seventies and the eighties. Yeah. Every writer who worked on Superman went to Julie Schwartz and said, "Let's do a series where Superman can't move the planet. Let's bring him back to that Siegel and Schuster purity." Um, and. You know, I know Marv Wolfman did it, I know Len Wein did it, I know I did it, I know Carrie did it, Bates did it, you know, so we were always trying to, like, get them to pull back a little, give us some, some opportunity to kind of, you know, make a challenge, because if the bad, if the good guy can't get hurt, who cares, you know, sure. you're fighting the guy, and, oh, okay, yeah. you know, uh, but they never, they never went for it until... Crisis came along, and, and you know they, they they brought back the uh, shortly depowered, the, the for a short while depowered Superman. Well, and I know Daniel O'Neill's run too in the seventies uh, with the sand. Uh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. They did right. cut it back, but immediately when his story was done, that he was pushing buttons back to it. Yeah, it was done. So, Jerry, you were part of the burn era and and the idea of not only. Getting rid of all the, the, you know, a lot of the great mythos and or the other Kryptonians and all that, but also uh, DH Superman as well, making twenty nine as opposed to kind of that father figure right. that he is suddenly becoming at. Right. Yeah. Well, the, the big part about even the deep, the deep powering, I saw the Superman movie and and that was my favorite. I like the first one, and you accept the fact that he turns time back and all that stuff. We never wanted to do that, but we did like the vibe of what uh, Clark and, you know, Smallville and all that kind of uh, held. I think Roger affirmed this. One of the things we did with Superman was we tried to create different vulnerabilities for him. One being like his religious upbringing, making him a little more susceptible to magic and, and things like that, which did give us a lot more stories to, to do where you could have some character who wasn't necessarily doomsday uh, occupy an issue and not be laughable. You know, you could do the prankster. A lot of these characters were funny. Mixius Pitalik was certainly formidable, uh, but a lot of the, what was known as the rogues gallery was kind of thin because Superman, for all those years, I mean, Luther really kind of was a, the prominent uh it's not yeah, yeah. So I mean we didn't we didn't have like multiple versions of Kryptonite really. We we reintroduced a lot of stuff. And that was the other part about Burns relaunch was it, it wasn't that that stuff would never happen. It was we finally get a chance to reintroduce it rather than, you know, oh it's been around and there's, you know, twenty five varieties of Kryptonite or whatever. <laughs> 
But yeah, we one of the things we had on the book was it was always an issue of trying to come up with villains, and I'm sure that all of us have come up with our own version of lame villains. You know, I mean, not all of them stick, as you say, but when you're filling a monthly comic, you really do want to give people something different, and you don't want to keep going into the well. And at the time in DC, at DC Comics, the editor, editors were all very protective of their villains, so you couldn't have a Batman villain necessarily come into a Superman book without jumping through hoops or what have you. Um, so in a lot of cases, I came up with characters that were stand-ins for the characters we couldn't use. I wanted to use Vandal Savage. We couldn't use him because he was in the Flash. They wouldn't give him to us. So he became Mr. Z. And it, it, it fulfilled the story that we wanted to do. It didn't necessarily need to be a regular character. That's uh, awesome. Yeah, and again, that's great. So Gangbuster, Gangbuster came in because I couldn't use the Guardian. You know, and, and in a way, Gangbuster became a much better part of Superman than the Guardian would have been for me because it allowed me to do uh, a Hispanic character and a new character, basically, that could be intertwined in the Superman-Clark uh, Lois uh, triangle. Agree, one, and uh, both Jerry and Roger, you guys uh, not only created films, but also added to the Daily Planet cast as well. We, I, Jerry and I were, we did a podcast conversation about a month ago, and he talked about the inclusion of Cat Grant and Ron Troop and uh, some of these other people. And I always feel like Superman's uh, supporting characters, any great hero needs that great chorus. Uh, of, of civilians to rub up against and show the contrast and, and, and I think, you know, Roger as you, as you wrote uh, the character and stuff you know, you talk about the, the supporting cast and, you know, what you wanted to do with them Yeah, well, the uh, if any of you remember the old uh, George Reeves adventures of Superman, so you, you would think that there were like three reporters that were in this major newspaper <laughs> and it would always show a city room with other characters in there and so we started giving them names and personalities just so they would be more than window dressing and uh, there was wit and there was one fellow who never said more than two or three words <laughs> in a row you know and so when Clark was leaving the planet to go off to news time or something would actually sit like four words in a row. <laughs> you know, and, and Mark's like, I've never heard you say this before. And Wood says, tell me not to lie. <laughs> so there's always some guy like that. Some, some guy who talks loud, some guy who never says anything. But, uh, but very few Steve Lombards. Very few Steve Lombards. <laughs> we sort of did a, a, a spin on Steve Lombard because people kept saying, when are you going to see Steve Lombard? I mean, so, so we made him a jockey. Oh, cool. <laughs> <laughs> And you almost never even heard about it. And it would occasionally throw in a gag one while his two things were long and something like But Jerry uh, was at least partially responsible for one of the really great supporting characters in the Superman stories, Billow. Yes, absolutely. It was just a wonderful character. And a wonderful character to write. Well, the, the funny thing about, I guess, the. the the fact that there were multiple Superman titles is that we each kind of staked out certain characters for the background and for the, um, I used, in Adventures of Superman, I used a lot of, I built stuff around Bibbo and about, around the, the bar and the Ace of Clubs and these were all things from my childhood and Bibbo was a real person in my childhood and uh, so 
that was an odd thing, I think, for a lot of people. And when I saw a bar scene in Superman Returns or something, I said, well, I know that's because of me, because I don't think Superman would have ever been in a bar in the previous, you know, 50 years of the, the history of the character. Uh, but each of us had characters. Uh, Roger would deal with a lot of Lex Luthor stuff, and um, Dan uh, staked out his own uh, side characters to develop. And that's how we made three and then four and then five books a, a month interesting. Each one had a little bit different flavor with the main guys being Superman, kind of holding them together. Those they, weren't all, they weren't all continued. The subplots continued. That was the important thing. The subplots could continue, but we would gang up and do a big story like Panic in the Sky or what have you. Those were the special kind of where the books went from. You know, Rod, it was like you know Roger to Dan to me to Louise or whatever. Um, otherwise, we did get to do individual stories. One. You know, one issue stories or what have you. Absolutely. No, it was a great period, and I certainly want to get into Doomsday, the death of Superman, the rise. Also, with obviously the DVD uh, coming out recently and stuff. But, Pete, um, one of the things that I think uh, prior to your, you and Dan Jurgens coming back to the book in Dan's case, but um, one of the big contentions was back and forth was the Superman Lois relationship. And I know for um, the New 52 period, again, a period where they decided to DH Superman, and you had Jurgens wrote uh, stuff for that, George Perez wrote stuff for that. Yeah, I was, I was doing Superman Wonder Woman. There you go, of course, shame on me. And then, uh, but no, honestly, um, the, then, you know, I, was it prior to Convergence? Convergence was that event before the New 52, was it before the New 52 that started? No, it was German. Or no, it was DC. Flashpoint? No, Flashpoint led me to, to the to 52. Well, that well, that led to the, the new 52. The right, right. That, that, that period. Convergence brought Lois and Clark back. In right, the, and that's what I wondered, uh, Pete, as far as, you know, whatever the editorial decision of, let's, you know, let's, let's return Superman, not only the relationship and, and have Lois and Clark together again, but ultimately, too, uh, John Kent. Right. And, uh, and, and Superman back to being a father figure. Yeah, I mean that was that was definitely that was all Jurgens in terms of bringing um, them together in convergence, and then uh, when we were at a summit, um, based on what Pat Gleason and I had done on Batman and Robin, uh, Dan had felt that you know he, we could really bring a lot to a uh, a family dynamic. Um, so he he said, you know, do you guys want to handle this this family dynamic and really open it up? And we we're like, yeah, absolutely. That'd be that'd be great. So that's kind of how we're. You know, we sort of took the ball from Lois and Clark that, you know, Dan and Lee Weeks were doing and, and then just kind of ran with it and opened it up, you know, even further. And uh, But it was it was great. I mean, it was a lot of fun to... Because obviously when you're writing a book with Bruce as a parent <laughs> and a book as Clark as a parent, you know, you're talking, uh, you know, complete polarization of characters. So it was really uh, a lot of fun to, to examine two father-son angles and obviously with Lois on the other side, but two father-son angles that were very different and the way that kids were obviously brought up very different and, and certainly you explored that as well in Super Sons and Super Sons is coming back uh, yeah it came back it uh, just came back actually last week I oh great yeah. oh fantastic okay yeah cool. it was um, it was I think June was the last issue or May and then um, um, 
DC uh, realized uh, it was good. To, it would be better to have those, that book out on the stands. Absolutely. And so uh, they were kind enough to listen to my pleading <laughs> and put it back out. So uh, uh, yeah, we're really we're really happy with it. It's a good. So I look at that. Super Sons to me is like a eight, a eight years old to eighty years old book. You know, it's a great gateway book, but it's still a lot of fun to read for anybody who's a comic fan and Absolutely. enjoys you know fun lighter adventures but just a kinetic feel between the characters that are so you know so different a lapsed reader came back to comics because of Super Sons one of my good yeah. friends so I understand you know I want to open it up to questions because again these guys represent 40 years of Superman's legacy but also can really talk about the entire 80 years so sir please get started uh, work for Superman's Pro Gallery uh, what were some of your favorite films that you guys worked on either creating or Let's go down the line. Favorite villains. Yeah, favorite favorite villains. Yeah, I know. Sorry. Enjoy the concert. What can I tell you? Rock on. <laughs> Roger, your favorite villains. Lux, of course, was always uh, a major villain. I enjoyed working on uh, Brainiac, bringing him back in. Yeah. But we also think. It was almost a relay of breaks because Jerry, you and I started up Brainiac and says, okay, now he's in this position. And I said, okay, now he's in this position. And the next, uh, now he's in this position. So he kept getting tougher and tougher until he <laughs> took over the war world. Right. <laughs> oh. Oh, um, uh, oddly enough, I think the, my favorite character to work on really was Terrible. Which, oh, I love Terrible. Yeah, I mean, it was a goofy, you know, 1970s uh, era uh, super villain. He space was, cowboy. It was a space cowboy, you know, he rode this mechanical kind of bronco thing and, and he had these six guns that shot all kind of <coughs> high-tech stuff. And there's just something amazingly goofy funny about writing... You know, Superman going up against, uh, you know, Matt Dillon. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Did Neil Adams do the first Terraman story? I think Neil did do the first Terraman Okay. Story. And that probably had a lot to do with our love of the character. I mean, at least I can only speak for myself. I think Carrie, I think Carrie Bates created him. Oh, there you go. Wow. And, uh... It was just, I remember the cover, it was an Eduardo Barreto cover. Oh, that's it great. Action Comics. And it was, um, uh, you know, it was, Superman standing here against a bar, like an old west bar, and bar mirror behind him, and he's backed up against a bar frame, and in your mirror you see the reflection of Terraman, you know, ready to draw Superman. It's like, come on. Hilarious. How do you not love that? Absolutely. I have to have my contrast here, because when we were on, when Carla and I would read the mail for the books, and it was right, it was pretty much right after Byrne had left, uh, and we were always scratching our heads, like, People saying we want to see Terra Man, and we're like, why does anybody see, want to see Terra Man? Now we realize that it was Paul Pepper writing these. Um, so after the crisis didn't erase all the good stuff. <laughs> after a while, uh, I said, okay, well, I'm going to do Terra Man, and I'll just do because we're re- reintroducing everything. And I thought Terra Man's a, like an eco terrorist guy, and uh, I still, you know, had fun doing that. The cover I did was uh, a showdown. Cover Superman in the foreground, Terra Man in the background. But uh, I always felt the main appeal of that was the fact that Neil Adams had a hand in, even if it was a small part of it. And I do own a page of that. I actually oh, cool. wound up finding a page of Terra Man, which is also kind of amusing. My favorite, oddly enough, my favorite 
story that I did when I was writing Superman with I like working with Mr. Mixer Piddle because he was he was uh, kind of unpredictable and again thanks I think Byrne came up with some good twists and made him much more powerful in, in, a, in a sense rather than just being a pest um, but I really liked not that he's a great villain but I really enjoyed uh, writing Prankster Wow. And I had wow. one issue that I did with the prankster where Morgan Edge is in the hospital. I had the prankster like just totally terror, uh, terrorize this guy because he deserved it. But as as all the stuff I did, that was one of my favorite issues to do because it was it was just fun. And a lot of times we would just do stuff that would make the editor laugh. I, Not sure. that you could make Julie Schwartz laugh necessarily. <laughs> but you, you could, but it involved electrodes. Ask him to buy yeah. lunch. <laughs> Yankee bean soup. <laughs> um, I, on a similar note, um, I did a, a Toy Man story called the Great Toy Man Trivia Contest. And Toy Man gets out of prison and he, he starts his contest to uh, about himself, a televised thing. And it's a whole big elaborate stuff and it finally turns out he's just, he's looking to you know get the kid, the guy who stole his favorite toy when he was a kid. <laughs> and he knew that this guy would know the answer to the question and thereby smoke him out with this contest. <laughs> Can you get any more of a waste of, of you know, 18 pages? For well, that's an Eisner winner right there. <laughs> that, yeah, but it's just a, it, you have to do this, this goofy stuff. You have to get it out of your system because otherwise it's so deadly serious. And so, you know, every now and then they've just got to, like, Superman's just got to look at the reader and go, okay. But <laughs> it, 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 it offers contrast. Yeah, and that was absolutely. What, yeah. Yeah. If you read any of that era that, that we were on, there was contrast. And that was, Bibble was there for humor, mm-hmm. but sure. it was also there for some pathos. Yeah. I mean, there was an aspect to all these characters that... You're not going to read a comic where guys are just gritting their teeth for well, 20 you, pages. That, that, that was the era. Comics today, but that know. was the era we were existing in, and the pressure was everything had to be serious. Everything had to be, you know, uh, dark night, dark and gritty. Yeah. Right? Superman had to have a gun. <laughs> I mean, it's just stupid <laughs> stuff. Yeah. It, it, it doesn't know, all have to be the same. And I think all of us would agree with that. Yeah, right? the best books are ones that walk that line or, or on the fence of, of giving you drama, pathos, levity, and obviously rock'em, sock'em robots. So yeah. it's, you know, it's, it's, that's how we approached even when we took over Superman, Pat and I. It was, it was in a weird way that like when we did the pitch, we were like, we wanted DC to know right away that the A story you know, the A and the B, exact that kind of stuff. The A story was going to be the. There was no big, crazy, overarching villain or anything. It was really the family just going through their life with the stuff that was going to be happening to them. That was the plot. And then, of course, we'd have the you know the villain be a B story and stuff, and it would sort of intertwine and come into the A story. But we wanted them to know that you know we weren't just gonna. We wanted this book to feel more like you know a family drama that you know you hadn't seen before and really explore this, these relationships instead of you know go balls to the wall action all the time. So it was really key for us to balance that out and. We really enjoyed that run for, for, for the 40-some-odd issues. It was great. Well, yeah, ultimately, you, you have to get away from the superheroics and, and the fighting because you know, if, if you just did Superman stories where it was just Superman, it was never Clark Kent, you never did, you would, this would be the dullest damn character. Yeah, it would be. I, was hard, I, I got invited to write a, uh, a, a Lone Ranger short story for an anthology, a, a prose thing. And um, I started writing this story, 
and I found that I could not find a character in The Lone Ranger. I found him totally devoid of anything and couldn't write. So I had to change my story and do a story about some other people yeah. and the Lone Ranger was peripheral. And that's how you got into it. You come yeah. through this. Yeah, right. that makes sense. So you need, like when I was doing Superboy in, in the 80s, um, the whole thing was Clark Kent is a wuss. Clark Kent don't play baseball, he doesn't date, he doesn't do anything. If he gets his hair wet, he'll get a cold, you know. <laughs> so I... I, I Homeschooled? Told, homeschooled, that's right. Now. <laughs> so... Yeah, you know, but he was just supposed to be this pampered. You know, that was the bit. If I do this, the other kids might suspect I'm Superboy. Right. As opposed to every other kid in town does this, <laughs> and nobody suspects they're right. Superboy. Right. So you're just paranoid. You need to get over. It. <laughs> so I started uh, first. I, I introduced. Uh, I introduced a girlfriend for him. Yeah, this beyond Lana. Hmm. Beyond Lana. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. A, a whole new character. And what was it? Um. Hmm? Lisa. Lisa. That's right. Thank you. What was her last name? Lisa, Lisa Davis. Davis. Yeah. Okay. And in fact, biographer. <laughs> and in fact, uh, Julie and I had planned we were going to bring her back to Superman, and she was going to show up and go, Clark, I need your help. I need Superman's help. And Clark goes, Well, I'll see if I can. Con-. She goes, Come on, Clark. I know. I dated you. You know. Um, but so we had that, and then you know, one day he, he, there's a baseball game. So he, he goes in and he goes, All right. I just won't use my powers. I won't, you know, I'll just be... And he hits the ball and he gets to first base or whatever and, and all the kids go, oh, good, hey, nice shot. <laughs> and, you know, and from then on, I just stopped treating him like that wuss and he was just another one of those kids and it made him infinitely more interesting. I'm glad you said that because, honestly, that is, to me, it was the one thing about the, the Weisinger and partially Jim Schwartz era was Clark the Wuss. And I always loved on a television show that George Reeves, Clark Kent was not a wuss. He was an investigative reporter. And when Lois and Jim were in trouble, it was, I wish Mr. Kent were here. He would know what to do. Right. It was never, oh, Superman saved us. You know, and, I, and really, I, I always, anytime I talk to a DC writer, a Superman writer, I always ask, so, um, yeah, you know, like, is he Clark or is he Cal? So Pete Stark, is he Clark or is he Cal? I don't know. I just always looked at him as one person. It's okay. kind of, it's, uh, that's just the way I, I approach Superman. To me, he was always just, you know, a, a being of, you know, obviously Krypton, obviously of Earth, but, you know, an upbringing of his parents. He was, he was just... He was Clark Kent. He was Clark Kent. That was, okay. He was, you know... You know, Mark Miller would disagree. I know. I had a great dinner with him at C2E2 this year, <laughs> and he's very happy to point out that he, his comparison, and honestly, guys, I want to hear... Yeah, I heard of that. That, you know, he was, a, he was so highly uh, evolved as a Kryptonian, he's like, it, it would be like us being raised by a colony of ants. And again, I disagreed with Mark, but I thought it was an interesting... You can't, once you, once you start with the Kansas template, that's who he is. Yeah. You know, that's, it's you're, the nurture yep. of that of that place is what made him who he is. But that, so. that wave of, of Wade and uh, Morrison and Miller, that was, that was what we were kind of working against in mm-hmm. a sense, because that was, you know, why is, why, you know, Superman didn't need to be revamped. They wanted 50 stories. They wanted all that stuff. And that was... Certainly, uh, you know, John Byrne came in with a, a job to do, and the job was to make it relevant. I mean, you throw out stuff, you keep stuff, but basically, he t- what he always did, he goes to the source. Right. And you look at the first year of Superman, and it's there. Super first year of Batman, it's all yeah. there. Um, but I always felt like the the template from the movie 
mainly because the Smallville stuff in the first Superman movie was so rich. It was warm. It was very Norman Rockwell. Yep. Um, yeah, the first 40 minutes. Once you, yeah, I mean, yeah, once, awesome. once you attach to that, it's hard to ever go, yeah. how would this guy be like some cold clinical, you know, Kryptonian? Well, we played with that, too. Roger, we, we, did that with, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we did that with the Krypton Man, and, and, you know, we were trying to contrast that, but... Yeah, I mean, when you—that's when you your your way of getting into any of these characters. If if I was writing an alien, I wouldn't think it would be that fun. I mean, you have to find a way into it. Where you have Clark Kent, it's an immediate—you know—I I know that guy. Right. You don't know that he's Superman, but you know that guy based on oh, he grew up here, and you know. And this it gets to a point. We've reached a point with comic books now where everything gets overthought. Yeah. You know, you're trying to base. I had, I'm working with some guy on some project, and, and he pretty much a civilian, but whatever. Um, and he got well. How does the time machine work? We got to know how the time machine works. I got. Let me get the schematics. I said. I said. Study a, up on it again. I said it's a time machine. Time machines don't exist. <laughs> so we can say we can just say it's a time machine, and it travels through time. You don't have to know how it works because <laughs> it's fiction. So we're accepting it. We accept that he can fly. But what if someone has to fix it? <laughs> I never thought of that. That's where you come in, Jerry. Thank God I kept the you manual. You can't overthink this stuff. It's not real. And the minute you start trying to force reality into, the, into it, 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 it just shows you how fragile it is and what it's really made of. So you accept Tarzan was raised by apes. Okay. How he right. learned toilet training was beyond us. <laughs> we don't have to know. It's mythology. It's, it's pure American mythology. Exactly. Mythology, nobody questions, you know, Zeus did this or that. Well, what? but she was his daughter. How come she didn't do... No, it's mythology. Just but go with it. Wonder Woman was made of clay, so I mean, you know, that's right. Sure. That's, or yeah. was she? You just, and I'm saying, you just. Made out you, of lesbian clay. You, <laughs> lesbian clay. <laughs> <laughs> and I met Art Cloakie numerous times, and he insisted Gummy was real. Really? Okay. Well, he was that's older then. Yeah, he was older. <laughs> more, more questions? Uh, please, miss. Oh, favorite power. Favorite power. Uh, flight, I would, I would think. I mean, there are other characters who fly, but he enjoys it. I would if I could fly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's always the number one. I mean, but I do love when he just blasts people with his eyes. I mean, that's always, you can't get it right. When you're, you can just like say, and now the heat vision explodes from his eyes and sears, whatever, you know, you know that's always fun too. Well, that's when he really lets loose with his yeah. powers from the heat vision. That's that great moment in that Alan Moore, Dave Gibbons story, the man who has everything, and Mongol has torn his heart out and burned. And it's like, whoa! Yeah, that, was the first, that, that was one of the first times I really felt that power. And that was the great. Like, it was that was the first time you really said, "Wow, that heat vision!" When he lets loose with that, that's that's pretty awesome. Well, because previous to that, they only really showed it as little pinpoints. Yeah, for yeah. the most part, it was like yeah, uh, you know, melting, melting. And it was never really to harm. Right. in the gun. Right. Never right. really to take somebody <laughs> out. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. I, I always. Um, uh, I, I like flight. I just, uh, you know, Christopher Reed really made it just like his Superman in flight was beautiful. It had you know, an elegance guy, to it. This guy just was like ballet in the air. Yeah. And it, it was really great. Um, 
yeah, so that would be mine. Did the movie impact your guys? Uh, how did it impact your guys' writing? Roger, how did, how did it impact your writing? Really a combination of uh, the first Chris Reed movie and the George Reed series. Uh, that I love George's Clark. Very smart, very witty, very urbane. Didn't put up with a lot of silliness from Lois. Superman didn't put up with silliness from Lois. Uh, but Chris, Chris made me believe that the disguise worked. If you remember the scene where mm-hmm. Superman and Lois have been out of the town, and Superman goes, walk by, and he's, as he's leaving here at the front door, uh, and Lois comes through the apartment, opens the door, and there's Clark. A little subtle thing on how fast he is. And she comes in, and she's all distracted from being out with Superman. And Clark runs from, well, we're supposed to get together and have dinner, maybe. And, and she, she turns around, he goes, right, Clark. And, and he turns around, and he sort of grins, and he takes off his glasses, and he straightens up, and then he straightens up again. Yeah. And you're like, oh my god, yes, Superman is like two or three inches taller than Clark. Yes. <laughs> Moses. Yes, Clark? Oh, I thought you were going to get a hamburger. Oh my god, it works! Yeah. It works! Yeah. Frank Whiteley in All Star Superman with Grant Morrison, I think, was one of the artists that also played on that. And even though he was still kind of the same size, he was much yeah. over yeah. and had that neat look and stuff. So, yeah. yeah. Now, you can't at that. I mean, when I saw it, I was 16. I can't remember how, but it was, uh, yeah, it can't help but leave an imprint on you, the movie. I mean, it just, it definitely informed when I got around to working on it. It definitely was there without a doubt. Chris Reeve was just. He was, you know, my Superman. I still, I saw the um, the repeats on the the Reeve stuff, and I did enjoy it. But Reeve was the the main template for me. Yeah, well, the, oh, I was going to say yeah. the, with the movie, um, that was a, another kind of limitation in a sense that the the movie reintroduced kind of a nerdy Clark Kent, <clears throat> which you can get away with in a movie because there's a movie every three years or something like yeah. that. With the comic, it it we knew when we re relaunched it that it wasn't going to be uh, Clark as you know playing the nerd character necessarily <clears throat> necessarily because it just was kind of a, a dead end same with Lois uh, jumping off of buildings waiting for Superman to save her yeah you it might be fun to play and, and touch on that those old stories but uh, yeah the but the movie really just it was a warmth of the character and the fact that he really embodied it and I'll, I'll go with Rogers as well I saw the TV Superman um, when I was a kid in reruns, and I always thought he he dis, he did seem distinct, even though he was virtually identical as Clark Kent and and uh, Superman. He he just seemed like a likable guy, and I always felt like that was one of the most important aspects. If you have a character as powerful as Superman, that he should be a likable person because if he's not. He's not trusted, and people are scared of him, right? So that was the key for me, and I think we're always fighting that tide of, what if Superman goes bad? Well, if you do that, if you do that once, no one will ever trust him again. That's why he's the Boy Scout. You know, that's the the main, and again, the movie, I think, does evoke that and project that to a degree. I mean, I love Lucy episode, too. Yes, absolutely. Fantastic. I was. I I grew up on the George Reeves Superman show. He is. um, He, for many reasons, including you know a crappy home life and stuff. Superman was a you know 
a, a lodestone to me. I just, sure. And um, uh, George Reeves will always be my definitive Superman. I believe that, that there could be a man that good and that righteous who could, you know, who could do this. I, I believe George Reeves totally convinced me that, yes, a man can do this. You know, a man could be this way. Christopher Reeves made me believe a man can fly. You know, he really did. It literally was that. It was like, oh, yeah, this can be made to, you know, to, to have that feeling of reality. Because the TV show certainly didn't. You know, it was, you know, I, I was going to joke before that my one of my favorite abilities of Superman's powers was his ability to duck when a gun was thrown. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, because, you know, the bad guys would shoot the gun and the bullet, you know, there were no bullets, so they bounced off him. But then when they threw the gun, it's like, oh, this shit's real. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's oh, Robert, uh, Robert World of Comedians yeah. great bit about yeah, 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 right. the gun. So, uh, <laughs> And, and the fact that is Superman and Clark Kent look identical is irrelevant because you know, buy, you, you, you buy if you buy the bit, you know, if you buy the the the, um, the stick, you buy the bit. Right. So yeah, accept it. And you know, back in the during the Schwartz era, again, there was an attempt to explain why nobody recognized Clark Kent. Magic glasses. Magic glasses. It was a story written by wow. a dear friend of mine, Marty Pasco, who would break my head for reminding the audience <laughs> that the story existed because he is so mad. <coughs> but the, the bit was, it turns out that nobody recognizes Clark because he made the, the, the lenses of his glasses from the Kryptonian, from the Kryptonian glass in his rocket ship yeah. and he gives off some kind of unconscious super hypnosis that through the glasses made, yes, yes, exactly, exactly, that is why, that is why you have to accept the bit and not worry about it. Now you can use that. Yeah, that's it. Everybody's giving you permission. Well, actually, I'm, I'm off. I was going to say, I'll email Bettis and I'll let him put magic glasses around it. Yeah. And, you know, Marty, Marty will say, it was Julie's idea. I had nothing to do with it. But again, going back to the movie, those were some of the greatest moments as well. When as Clark, everyone's just pushing away, the elevator doors close without him making it, and just, yeah, that whole, he's he's a face in the crowd, and, and we ignore Clark. And that's, again, that's, that's I think that was I think that was over the top. I think they were yeah. playing it too much for comic really? effect. Uh, yeah, because, you know, again... <laughs> Nobody is going to believe that this schmuck, this nerd, is is this you know brilliant investigative reporter. It's just it's not viable, you know. That was his first appearance, but yeah, yeah, easy to excuse him. Still, I always thought. No, no, no. One of the things I was going to mention is popping in my head, thinking about all the Superman movie stuff. But I was thinking about how when I was working on Superman. And I was a fan of what John was, uh, Byrne was doing, and I'd get copies of these issues as I was working on my thing. And I remember seeing that first one where uh, basically Lex Luthor, you know, has the uh, cracks the code, figures out Clark Kent is Superman, so and says, "No, this here's the deal," and he's like, he refuses to believe it. Yep. I always thought that was the greatest thing because, again, not, it's a comic book, it's not real world, but it was a kind of a real world kind of thing where you'd go, okay. Why would he be? You know, why would Superman be yeah. somebody yeah, else? Right. You know, yeah, why, yeah. and that was from Lex Luthor's perspective. Right. Lex Luthor would like to be Superman. Yeah, as far as the general public is concerned, he's always Superman. Right. You know, he doesn't wear a mask. And it's not like Batman's he's right. Batman wears a mask. Batman has something to hide. Right. Maybe he's only ugly. 
Right. Batman has something to hide. Superman has something to hide. Right. You can see his face. He's out there all the time. Right. Where, where is he? Well, he's probably going to another side of the planet, stopping a typhoon or something. Right. Or in outer space, keeping right. the meteors away. Keeping the meteors away. Superman is a busy guy. And yes, Superman is a busy guy, which is why he needs to come home and be Clark and, and unwind. So, but anyone, any Caucasian male of a certain height and build and dark hair looks like Superman. We were talking about the uh, thing that Chris did in the movie, standing up and standing up again. Something that people have forgotten over the years, and I, I came across this in doing some research for a Superman project one time. In the very earliest days of the sequel years to Superman, Clark had a different face. And, and in fact, a, a superpower that everyone forgot about was that Superman could change his face. Yep. Change his face. <laughs> yep. yeah, you know? and, and everyone had forgotten about that. So that, like, by the late 80s, when they asked me to do Starman, I said, oh, Superman doesn't use this power anymore. I'll do the Starman. That's great. It's a good power. I'll steal it. And, and you look at your early stories, and Clark had a different face, and Superman was taller and broader and stood differently. A lot of different body language. And over the years, and this was partly because uh, Joe had some vision problems, and Superman was so popular that the company wanted more and more Superman product, so there were more and more assistants. And the assistants knew that Clark and Superman were the same person. So they drew them that way. Now, some of, it, some of that was because some of these guys had just one male face. Right. You know, that they could draw classic Alex Raymond. Took over tearing yeah. the pirates from right. Right. Sure. Basically had one face. And he used it, you know, he says, well, this guy looks just like this guy, except his hair is blonde. And this guy does right. have this, yeah, so it was one of these things where we're going, you know, Clark, without your glasses, you look like Superman. And, and everybody else. Without those fresh things, you look like Superman. <laughs> you know, Harry, without the cigar, you know, Lois, you look just like Superman. You look just like Superman. just the white light, you look like Superman. Silliness can get out of hand. One of my, my absolutely favorite page ever published in a comic book was a 1958, I think, Superman story. Uh, the the crew of the uh, Daily Planet is at a beach picnic, and Clark, you know, they're all out there, and Lois is snooping around trying to discover Clark's identity because she is a. This is a story called the day uh, Lois. Uh, you know, discovered, started, discovered super, you know, okay. Clark, Clark yeah. Superman, whatever. Yeah. And so they're at the beach, and you know. Did she have a metal detector? No, no, no. Oh, wait, she, it's she's him. checking everybody's possessions for, you know, for a uh, costume hidden there, and Clark's going, Good thing mine is super compressed in the toe of my shoe. And then. She's going around like she knows that it's got to be a member of the Daily Planet. However, she has deduced that. She's come to that conclusion. And now she's checking out all the guys. She's going around, and um, wow, Lois is a perv, Clark, right? <laughs> Clark is ready for this though. He has a a, a foam rubber arm, human arm. Hilarious. <laughs> he buries himself. Super. He twists himself <laughs> into the sand. The story. Buries buries himself <laughs> and has the arm there. So in case Lois comes along and squeezes his muscle, <laughs> it'll feel. Like popping truck. <laughs> but then, oh irony of irony, Lois just passes right by Clark and doesn't even check him out. And Clark is going, oh, what the hell? What's wrong with I went to all this work. You don't want her to know. Why are you? Because back then, the relationship between 
you know, Superman and, 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 and Lois was that between a 10-year-old and his older sister. It was awfully sure. cruel. Yeah. 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 Boy, those guys were on some psychedelics. <laughs> but, I mean, that was, the, that was, that was the, the level of explanation they got to. And, you know, the modern-day explanations, though using bigger words and sounding more technical, are no less silly. Yeah. Fair enough. Absolutely. Yeah. That's awesome. Real fast, because I'm curious and, I, and loving Superman, especially the history of Superman. There's Curse One, there's Wayne Boring as far as the classic runs. But um, as you mentioned, Roger, the, the assistants, the other men that drew Superman, uh, is there a favorite? Mine was Wynne Mortimer. I always loved his covers for World's Finest and the like and everything, and I thought he was an exceptional Superman artist. I, I always liked Wayne Boring. Yeah. Uh, sure. Wayne was, when I'm old enough that Wayne was the Superman artist yeah. when I was coming along, and then Kurt sort of supplanted right. him yeah. to, the, to the point where initially there were guys like Outlaw Steel who were sure. aping Wayne's, right. and eventually they wound up aping Kurt's because that became the thing. Yeah. But uh, besides those two, uh, Dick Sprang actually did a number of uh, Superman stories, mainly for World's yeah. Finest, but occasionally the Superman title. And it was really choice stuff. It was great. I'll, I will go with Win Mortimer. Somebody is uh, doing a book on, um, on on the Superman assistant, you know, the artist after the Sure, the studio, yeah. And um, he contacted me and asked if I'd like to do it, and I said I'd love to do a chapter about uh, about Win Mortimer. Well, you're going to have to tell me who that is. I'd have to make it on the Yeah, um, and, um, uh, you know, when I did a little more research, Win drew a, fir- a few of my Supergirl stories in Superman. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, so I thought I had met him a few times, and I had a story about meeting him that I was able to use and all that. But when I started doing the research, Win Mortimer, this who is you will remember from Spidey Electric Company, mm-hmm. you know, doing this Spidey Superstores. Yeah, Spidey Superstores. Um, he was DC's lead artist throughout the 1950s. He was their main cover artist. He did over 350 covers for them. He was he was a regular artist on not only Superman but Batman as well, working in two different offices, which was very rare. Wow. Um, and he was all over the place. He wow. was He was one of the, cool. the top artists uh, of, of the 50s. That's awesome. You guys have uh, your favorite uh, Superman? And obviously, it's mine. The, the, the old time is a convenient. Mine's and Derek. And you can't say yours. And I understand that, absolutely, Jerry. Hell yeah, man. My, mine, I liked uh, Jack Burnley. And yeah. sure. he did some great covers yeah. back absolutely. in the 40s. Beautiful covers. But in a... Probably more of my era would be uh, Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Absolutely, and I I really do love Kurt Swan. I love I thought Kurt Swan was a just a really great great human being. He was a great guy. But uh, Jose, if, again, he captured the Christopher Reeve kind of mm-hmm. vibe mm-hmm. with it. And, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and he's his work is flawless. I don't think I've ever ever seen a bad drawing from no, him. You know? Definitely not. That's awesome. More, more, yeah, absolutely. More fan questions. Sir, uh, two of you guys, Roger and Jerry, you were involved with uh, Mary, Superman, and Lois, mm-hmm. and all you mainly wrote before they got married. And you recently uh, wrote them as a father. So I was wondering if you could all talk a little about what your preference was. You, you grew up single, married. Uh, I grew up with Superman being single, but. Uh, Having been married made sense in the whole post-crisis storylines that we were doing. Uh, I don't know how many of you know this, but uh, originally we did what the Crisis of the Crimson Kryptonite, where Mixx Pimlick has created this red kryptonite, which basically takes away Superman's powers. He's just an ordinary mortal being, and he has to deal with that over 
Narnia stories. And the original plan was over the stories. Clark realizes, well, gee, I'm an ordinary man now, and sort of proposes to Lois. And originally, this, uh, as conceived, the story would be that he gets his powers back and he's going, oh, no, and, and, and you have to break it up somehow. And Jerry was writing the ultimate issue of that, and you had a problem. You know, it, it didn't seem real. Yeah. It, it seemed it seemed fake to suddenly break them up after all he'd been through there. And you talked to Mike Carlin and said, "What if she says yes?" And you were the next phone call. Then as Roger's book came Mike, out, <laughs> Mike told me I would send her to his. Yeah, and, and then Lois turns him down Jerry said, "What if she says yes?" And I thought for a second, "Wow, that would change everyone's perceptions of this because everyone's going to expect it." Well, I'll break up. That also always happens. He says, "What if she says yes?" And the more we talk, the better it sounded. He says, "Go for it." And you know, then we were said, "Okay, they're engaged," and we figured, "Well, a nice long engagement." Because that was the problem thing that bugged me with. Uh, with Spider-Man and Mary yeah. Jane, it's like, let's get married. Okay, we're married. Right, Wait, right. what? Yeah. <laughs> That's it? Where's, I, the, where's the marketing? I envision that, that engagement could last as long as they were even <laughs> around. It didn't have to happen. Yeah. They could break up, they could... Yeah, work. all sorts of things can happen. But, you know, we started developing the stuff, and then I said, well, you know, the thing that always bugged me with The Flash is Barry and Iris get married, and he doesn't tell her doesn't tell her. <laughs> Until the honeymoon. <laughs> she doesn't know. The whole thing. And finally, Jerry Garrick's wife says, what are you doing? This is crazy. And so he says, on, on their first anniversary, he says, I'm going to tell her. And he tells her, and she says, yeah, I know, we're talking to sleep. <laughs> That's right. That's really? Something of Ozzy and Harriet. So I'm going like, wait a minute. If Clark and Lois love each other and are becoming a couple and trusting, this isn't something you say for the wedding night or your first anniversary. Right. You know, so he says, she has to tell him. She has to tell her. You know, so we developed that thing, and that, that, I think that worked out. Well, well, you know what's funny, too, is historically within that time frame, the, there, was actually, there were actually a couple of good things in Superman 4, the movie. They were not major things. They were the interactions when uh, Lois goes to see Clark. Yep. And I think that really made it clear that Lois knew that Clark was Superman. There was an implication with, yep. I don't remember if they outright did it, but um, that was in the back of my head too with her accepting it that was that she, you know, would kind of know. It wasn't like she'd be totally, you know, flummoxed and go, what? I'd never thought that. Yeah. So I think all those little things happen organically when we were working on the book. And, and there were always stories that would just take a little turn because we would, you know, you plot something out and then you'd be drawing it maybe a month or two months later and you could kind of have yeah. the benefit of living with it for a period of time and, you, you know, it wasn't that rush of deadline, especially writing and drawing it too. Sometimes I'd be at that drawing stage and it'd be like, this feels like it should go this way. And the wonderful thing about working with people who were all on the same page is that nobody, like Roger could have said, like, 
uh, this is horrible. I'm, I quit. You know, <laughs> I mean, it's not unheard of. Yeah. But we were we were all like, you know, hey, Superman, we're all on the same team. You yeah. know, and that was the great part about being part of that group dynamic was that the group was the right group. I mean, when I was there, we all got along. We fought. You know, but we had the ultimate goal of trying to make the best story. And, and there was another great thing is getting each other's work in progress. Yeah. You know, back back before email, yeah. um, <laughs> DC paid FedEx a lot of money <laughs> because every week we'd all get a packet of, of photocopies yeah. of each other's works in progress. Here, here's this plot. Here's the pencils to that. Here's the, the, the inks and letters on, on this one. So we see stuff going back and forth. So it was. It really helped with the cohesiveness. So it was one of these things where if, I, I always used to joke: if Jimmy Olsen breaks his his arm one week in uh, Superman, next week in Adventures of Superman, he has a cast on it, right. preferably on the correct arm. Right. You know, <laughs> like Sorry, Roger, I broke both arms. I couldn't remember. <laughs> God, I'm sorry because we're running out of time. And, and God, I could go on for hours with you guys. And, and if you let us, we will. And believe me, well, I'll expect some uh, emails to uh, set up some uh, podcast conversations on work to, to continue the discussion. But gentlemen, truly, thank you for your contributions to Superman. Man, what a great discussion. So excited to talk about Superman with those guys. And I hope you enjoyed it on today's Word Balloon. I can't wait to see what uh, kind of panels are going to be at New York Comic Con. I'm very excited about uh, heading there. And our sponsor today, Lightning Strike Comics, will also be at New York Comic Con. They've got a couple things going on. Uh, Of course, they are debuting their new book, The Phantom Strikes. Alex Saviak will be there. He's the artist on the book. And he'll be at his table in Artist Alley, table I-10. There will also be a fan meetup at New York Comic Con at the Cosplay Central stage. That's being presented by Imager, located in the River Pavilion, Sunday from 345 to 445. They'll have limited edition signed prints of the portrait cover of the first issue of The Phantom Strikes by cover artist Oisin Roche. They'll be given out for free on a limited first-come, first-served basis. Really, really neat stuff. And uh, I want to thank Lightning Strike Comics for uh, sponsoring today's episode of Word Balloon. They've got a lot of great stuff. The Life and Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, Prince Valiant, the 80th Anniversary Magazine, Highlander, the Commemorative Movie Magazine, and many more, including their own anthology series, award-winning Lightning Strike Presents. It's available online at their website, lightningstrikecomics.com, and available at Comixology right now. To order copies of their books, visit their website, lightningstrikecomics.com. And if you're a retailer, you can make bulk orders of their books by emailing info at lightningstrikecomics.com. Thanks again for listening to Word Balloon today. Thank you, League of Word Balloon listeners. John Suntra saying, uh, I hope you enjoy uh, this weekend. I hope uh, I'm giving you a little bit of uh, things to listen to. Uh, Of course, earlier this week, we also had our uh, talk with Adam and Aiden Glass, the guys behind Lollipop Kids, the writers uh, on that Aftershock book, and the great Howard Chaikin uh, sharing his mind and also his excellent image book, Hey Kids Comics, a wonderful history of comics. Uh, The names have been changed to protect the innocent and the not-so-innocent, but uh, Howard's got all the dirt of what was going on behind the scenes in the comic business in the post-World War II years all the way through the early 2000s. 
It's a tremendous series from Image. I can't recommend it enough. And I can't recommend our conversation as well, which came out earlier this week on Word Balloon. And also listen to our Venom panel with Dave Michelinie also being released today. Again, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Word Balloon is a copyright feature of Shaky Productions, copyright 2018.